Uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So, uh, verse 13 of chapter 2 ended this way. Just to remind you from last week. Well, actually, let's go back to verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. Now, there's one aspect of that that I don't think we talked about very much last week. Uh, we talked about the sheep and the shepherd, right, and the gathering of, of the flock and how that's a, that's a comforting image that Jesus picks up on himself when he says he is the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, right? And we did talk about the way that the king will pass before them with the Lord at their head, that he's like, you know, as shepherds do, they follow the voice rather than driving behind with the rod, um, the sheep will follow them. And I think we talked about animals and feeding patterns and you know, they hear the sound of the, um, the feed bucket and then they come out, which the sheep do too. Uh, but they do hear the voice. So all you have to do is call them and they will follow you once they know your voice. And so we see that at the end of verse 13. But I think the part at the beginning of verse 13, we didn't deal too much with. Um, the one who breaks open will come up before them. What does your translation say? Opens the breach. Opens the breach. Yeah, I like that even better, actually. That's a better translation of the Hebrew. It gets to the the thrust of the Hebrew a little bit to say, um, you know, there's the the image in verse 12 is the gathering into a sheep pen, into a fold, right? With with borders that, um, that protect and guard, right? And with watchmen, Jesus um, uses that picture too, and so does the prophet that there are watchmen on the gates that are watching, you know, and that's what pastors are supposed to do. But here it's a different picture in verse 13, and this happens all the time in the scripture, especially in the Psalms, where you get one picture and then you kind of get the opposite picture, and they're both meant to be comforting images, or, or not. <laughs> they're both meant to be disturbing ones. In this case, both comforting, because he's opening the breach, which is, you know, you're, you're surrounded or you're hemmed in by what? What is the, if we want to call him, he's the, how does Luther say it? I brought Luther here on this one. He is the breach maker. That's Luther's, Luther's use. What is he breaching? He's certainly, he's certainly breaching uh, death by overcoming it. Yeah, death, true. Yeah, so, um, you know, the, the, picture, the picture in the church of warfare, we get that a lot in the scriptures of warfare and of, um, but also the opposite of like bondage and being in captivity, you know, which is another kind of war, right? It's part of war. Are you like referring to baptism too? Yeah, I mean, baptism's a way of breaking through the breach. I'll just read you Luther and then we can talk about that. What we have here, quote, who opens the way is quite gentle. The Hebrew meaning is this, that he breaks through. He who breaks through will go before them, which is what you said, breaches. Therefore, they will break through and pass through the gate. This is a, in a marvelous way. This is an elegant passage filled with comfort. There is the sign of the cross in it. It is as if he were saying, 
And that's something Luther does all the time. He, he quotes the, the prophet or quotes whoever he's reading, but then he expands it, right? So he, add, he fills in the blanks, if you like, or expands it. It is as if he is saying, I am leading them to the pasture and to the fold, just as Christ says, I will give them eternal life. But one important thing is sure. It is not a well-beaten path. There are many things that keep the elect from breaking out. Satan, we didn't, you didn't mention him, right? Sin, I don't think we have that either. The law, death, got that one, and the entire old Adam. Those are all different ways that, um, that we are in captivity or bondage. However, I will see to it, this is Jesus still speaking, I will see to it that absolutely nothing holds them back. I will promise them him who opens a breach. Actually, that would be the father then, right? I will promise them him who opens a breach, who will break through and take away every hindrance, who will prepare the way before them. Or that could be John the Baptist then. Uh, Thus they will have an easy passage. But as I have said, now this is Luther again, but as I have said, this is not the sweet way of the flesh. (laughs) The sweet way of the flesh, you know. It's the thing we don't talk about a lot. I mean, in the church, we, we make sin into this, you know, big negative, big no-no, you know, this, and, and then, but it, it sometimes ignores the reality of that we actually enjoy it. It's like sugar. It's like sugar, yeah. <laughs> well, it's not like sugar in this way, and that it's not good in small doses, in moderation, not even in moderation, so it's different than sugar, but you get the idea. Sweet way of the flesh, for the entire flesh must be mortified. The world sins, Satan, and our entire old Adam set themselves up against us, lest we break through, lest we follow this breach maker of ours. Christ, however, says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's John 16. I have broken through. Nothing will now bar the way, and you too will break through, namely through the gate, which was beset by sin, the world, and the law. You will break through to eternal life. In this way, the Lord is our head, that is our leader, conqueror. As he himself is broken through, so also we are going to break through through him. And thus, under the leadership of Christ the Prince, Jacob has been gathered together. Uh, From this text, although it appears to be vague, it is very clear that Christ is both God and man, that he died and rose again, that he ascended the Father and now rules eternally, etc. I like how Luther does that too. Oh, just as a side note, you might notice this too. (laughs) But isn't that that a great way of, uh, you know, seeing the gospel there in that text, you know, that it's... That he, maybe we don't think of sin. I mean, sin is kind of like, our relationship to our sinful nature is like that of um, uh, Stockholm Syndrome. Do you know Stockholm Syndrome? Dale does. I don't know if the children do. You don't know what Stockholm Syndrome is? Can you explain it? It's, uh, it, it goes back to, to an incident that happened on the train in, in Sweden mm-hmm. where some people were taken hostage. And the... The hostage takers threatened the people, you know, unless you do this, unless you do this, unless you do this. And after a while, the people who were, who were hostages began to identify with the hostage takers. And they, they almost had changed the side that they were on. They actually came to almost love their captors, you know, because it becomes this, um, how do you want to say it? They kept them alive. Yeah, it's a. I'm trying to think, there's a there's a psychological term for this. Another one, um, codependent. 
you know, the, cap, the, the ones holding cap, the captors are, they need captives and the captives need a captor to be a captive. They actually ended up coming to enjoy that relationship in a way, but not necessarily in a, what we'd say a positive way. I mean, who wants to be in captivity? But think of, um, I think of Egypt as they're wandering, you know, in the desert. What do they say about Egypt? <laughs> or Israel as they're wandering in the desert. What do they say about Egypt? We want to go back. It was so nice there. You're like, did you miss the point? I mean, did you forget? And we do, we forget. Uh, we'd rather go back. I mean, it's better, like, maybe we put it this way, better the enemy you know than the enemy you don't. So, I mean, there's a way that you're like, okay, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I mean, at least I know what that's going to be like, right? Whereas, there's probably one thing that we're most terrified of, more terrified of than our sin, and that's freedom, actual freedom. Because what's going to happen? Do we know? No, I mean, the Lord promises it'll be good and for us and, and for our neighbor. Um, but he doesn't... We know what it's like to be in captivity and bondage to sin. But we don't actually know intuitively what the freedom that the gospel brings is like. Unless we've actually maybe experienced it in kind of a vivid way at some point where we were caught in some horrible sin and then, and then freed by the gospel, for example. Then you're like, oh, the contrast, now it's evident. But, um, but the rest of the time, it's like, okay, you say I'm free, but, but explain that to me. Or, I, I don't really feel that way. It doesn't, I don't really feel any different after you tell me that my sins are forgiven. Well, what, why is that? You know, and, and maybe it's just because we don't recognize how deep in, in sin we have fallen. How does Luther say it in the hymn? Deeper still I fell, my life became a living hell. Or is that Speratus? That's Speratus. Spirat- that's Another composer. That salvation unto us has come. Five, five, five? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Okay. Ethan knows. So uh, other things are holding us captive too, Luther points out, right? So think of it like um, being under siege, right? When you have the walls surrounded. So, you know, you're surrounded by, by sin. The devil, which Peter picks up on, right, with the prowling about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So they're, they're just circling the gates, <laughs> waiting for somebody to just see, well, let's see if it actually, let's see if it's greener on the other side. Let's, let's go check out the other, the, way, the other way the other half lives. Kind of like um, if you're Amish, right, when you have that, I forget what they call it, yeah. The time. Well, just go out and live, live like a pagan for a little bit, and then come back. I'm like, no, that's actually probably not a good thing. Although, ironically, they do come back because, um, you know, that way of life is very, it's very legal. It's bound. Which actually, Luther said uh, in that quote I read you too, right? And maybe that was striking to you, um, but this is somewhat controversial among. Um, among the Protestant world, um, which actually is just another way of illuminating that Lutherans really aren't Protestants. We're not really, you know, Roman Catholics in, in the way of a, you know, Roman Catholic piety and, and actually belief. I mean, we're not really Protestants either in the way of, you know, uh, we talked about evangelicalism last week, right? Of being, you know, having this, that whole decision aspect and having... Um, kind of a lot like Roman Catholics, a different sort of works righteousness. So rather than being, rather than being charity and almsgiving, um, you know, taking care of your neighbor, which is what Rome commands, right? 
in the Protestant world, it's going to church, it's doing your devotions, it's um, sending your kids to a parochial school. It's all the, you know, being a, a, a religious person, which actually is a lot like medieval Roman Catholicism, actually. Yeah. yeah so, so <laughs> ironically, right? You say, wait a minute, I thought Protestants were protesting Rome, but they're actually, they actually coincide as far as their practice goes and some of their belief. They've come back around full circle today. Unfortunately, so Lutheran's kind of sitting in that middle ground. Um, what did he say that I said was going to be controversial? Oh, yes. So we have Satan, we have sin. Dale already mentioned death being, you know, a, a bondage that Christ has broken through so that death is no longer death, actually. What does he say? You will never taste death. You'll see death, but you won't taste it. You know, it's kind of a way of, yeah, it'll look like you die, but you won't experience the full pangs and stuff. Well, like what you said earlier, um, death's in the rear view mirror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm. What do you say? Death, the entire old Adam is kind of a, holds you captive. Um, but the other one, the law. Yeah, I was going to mention that. I don't yeah, and this is, I, like I said, this is a little controversial because I think, did we talk about like Ten Commandments on courthouses? and Did we talk about the use of the law? Yeah, I mean, Lutherans, um, not, not so much Luther, but later Lutherans, so his students and his students' students. So, you know, by the time of the Book of Concord, they had, they had distinguished the law in three aspects, mm-hmm. or three uses, yes. uh, uses in, in Latin, and that's the, what we usually say curve, God, uh, mirror, sorry, and guide, in that order. So that guy is the third use. Second use is the mirror. This is the uh, political use. This is the theological, we'll say, use. Theological use. And um, the guide is the Christian use, we'll say. And so, and then, and then the Lutherans are very careful to say in the Book of Concord that this use is always. Every time the law is preached, this use comes into play. The theological use that shows, we would say, just to summarize, shows you your sin. Actually, I wouldn't even say theological use. Maybe I'll change that. Um, we'll, we'll actually call this the, how do we want to say it? Well, theological is not bad, actually. But I want to say uh, judicial. How's that? Like the judge. So shows you your sin, and so so even when you say to someone, now now uh, you know, be a good neighbor. You know, take care of your your family. You know, show love to those who need love, mercy to those who need mercy. Um, which we should have no problem telling Christians to do. The problem is that it always does this too. Because, because then it comes back, as you look at yourself, what do you see? Well, I don't love my neighbor the way I should, even my own family, my siblings, right? I don't show mercy where I should. I instead, you know, um, withhold mercy, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, and so that's why some people say, well, if you don't preach this, then you're not actually preaching the law, which is true. Um, 
In the same way, if you don't preach the way the law curbs. But you notice, what's the problem here? If the law is holding you in bondage, it's because it always shows you your sin. So it's like the, um, I don't know what you want to say. It's the litmus test that goes with sin. Well, how do you know I'm a, you're a sinner? Well, consider your life according to the Ten Commandments, Luther says, right? You know, have you been faithful? Have you, have you prayed the way you ought? Have you call upon God's name every time that you're in trouble or in, in, or in thanks? So, so the law has this, this, this uh, captivity to it as well because it, it, it puts you under your sin. And that's even when we preach it to the Christian because... This we would say, as Christian, by Christian we mean the saint. And the judicial use, of course, does not accuse the saint who's forgiven freely in Christ, um, but the flesh, or, you know, we'll say the sinner, right? As Paul calls it. Sinner and saint, you've heard that. And it's not like you're a little bit sinner and a little bit saint, <laughs> by the way. Um, Luther, when he uses this expression, they, and reformers pick up on it, um, they use the Latin word totus. Totally. That's where we get totally. So you're totally saint by holy declaration of God, not because of anything that resides in you, but because of what God has said about you. Um, both in your baptism, breaking the breach there, um, but in the word forgiveness all, every time. Whereas you're totally a sinner as long as you remain in this body of death, as Paul says. At the same time, a double existence. Um, Two-faced, not even two-faced. It's not even right. It's like they're superimposed on top of each other. And so, those, and this is a very unique Lutheran distinctive is um, that paradox, if you like, right? How can you be both at the same time? Well, it's the same. Ask the question: How can God be both son of son of Mary and son of God? Or how can Jesus be both son of Mary and son of God? That's a paradox. You know, um, or a mystery actually is probably even a better word. A mystery, not a, as in it's something you can go seek and figure out, but as in something that's beyond your comprehension, beyond beyond reason and strength, must be received by faith. And this too must be received by faith. Although I think this part we don't have so much of a problem with, <laughs> if we're honest, right? Um, but that's not even true. I mean, uh, we don't even recognize this nature apart from God's word of law showing us our sin, um, we're very good at actually, what do you want to say? Um, rationalizing, covering up. Yeah. You know, Jesus dies um, as, the, as the atonement, right? As our, as our atonement, uh, the sacrificial lamb for our atonement. Atonement is a word of, means blood covering. Right? Propitiation is blood covering. Atonement is a covering. And um, it, so he covers you with his blood. That's what forgiveness is. And yet we try to cover ourselves with our own, like you say, rationalizations or um, whatever. So, so I don't even know that this is so evident to natural, to normal, you know, to man. I mean, sometimes I'll have somebody come, I'll have somebody come to me and say, you know, Pastor, my conscience is really tormented. Or maybe they won't say it that way. That sounds very theological. But they'll say, you know, this really bothers me. So there's a way that the mirror has already worked according to the way that the law is written on our hearts, as Paul tells us in Romans. But here, um, we're talking about the law being kind of this oppressive force. And the reason why that statement from Luther and others, many of them, 
I mean, we just read the bondage of the will, for example, um, is that then it seems to contradict the idea that, that the law serves to guide the Christian, the saint. But maybe, maybe this is helpful to understand um, that the way, the way that the third use of the law plays out is actually, it's according to the, according to the formula of Concord, which is the last book in the book of Concord, the, the saint of God uses God's law to restrain the old Adam. To say, you know, you're a damn, you know, you're a damn sinner, stop it. You know, this is what we're going to do instead. Right? Um, so it's not so much as the, the saint of God needs to know what to do. Because if you need, that would, that would be to deny that God has placed upon you his image, um, restored that image in baptism. Um, that, that to be a Christian is, is again, it's freedom, and it's, um, it doesn't need command. Paul highlights this in Galatians, if you read Galatians uh, 4 especially, which will come up at Christmas time, uh, that, that the law was given as a steward or as a caregiver. If you're, not a caregiver, that's wrong. As a taskmaster, really. We studied Galatians in Indiana, so Ethan's nodding his head, he must remember. Or maybe from all your other studies, right? Yeah, that it's a taskmaster or a discipline. Uh, the word is pedagogue. So think like pedagogy. So like like the like the the Catholic nun <laughs> with with the uh, with the ruler, or my third grade teacher who had, did the same thing, who was not Catholic. Uh, and so that's why the law was given. It was beca- given because of trespasses, not because of not for the sake of obedience, but because of this for discipline, for reproof, correction, training in righteousness, as Paul says. Does that help? Because, you know, when he says we're, we break free of the law, we break, we break free of this. Because, because, it, because Christ shows us that in him we are forgiven and gives us that freedom that the law does not, we don't need the law to guide us as Christians, or as saints, I should say. We do need the law to guide us and that the saint restrains the old Adam and tells it to go to hell, basically. <laughs> Shut up, you know. All those kind of expressions. So, I thought that might be helpful because we didn't really talk about that part of the verse too much last week. So, any questions so far? Should we dig into chapter 3? I think so. So, chapter 3, just before we start reading, um, here Luther says, and I, I think modern scholarship agrees with Luther, so 500 years later... They still agree that, that um, as I've told you, I think, before, too, that this, is a, this book is a summary of the teachings of Micah, that Micah prophesied on many occasions, <laughs> frequently. Not, he didn't really prophesy with a book, but that the prophecies of Micah were collected and recorded. Um, you know, it doesn't even tell us by who, does it? No. I mean, the Spirit does, but of course, but... Who is the who is the author? No, it just says the word of the Lord came to Micah. Um, so there's some scribe that, that records these writings. So Luther would argue that chapter three is kind of a recap of most of chapter one and the first part of chapter two. So you get recapitulation, uh, which is do you know what that word means? I learned this in eighth grade honors English. 
Yeah, yeah from capo, yeah. which in Latin means. I, I've been hearing that word a lot in. Uh, in music, yeah. And in um, the Roman folk, right? Oh yeah, um, capo from the Latin for capo is head, is head, right? So to recap is to go back to the head. So you're kind of working your way through, and you go back to the top again, start over, and come back again. Um, that's a recap. All right, we call it a summary sometimes, but this is more than that. Um, you do this with music. You'll have a theme introduced, and then it'll get developed, like that piece that you played. Then there's all this fun stuff, and then later on, it just comes back, just in the pedals or something. You know, and you hear just the melody again. You go back to the beginning, and then before it again from there. So that seems to be what's happening here. But just, that's the introduction. Who hasn't, who hasn't read? Elsie, have you read in here? Yeah. Okay, well you can read again. Read through verse 4 if you would. So, starting at 1 Chapter 3, verse 1. Okay. You want me to stop at 4? After 4, yeah. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them, and break their bones in pieces, and chop them up like meat in a kettle, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time, because they have made their deeds evil. Okay. So you can hear how that's an echo of the the theme back in, uh, especially chapter 1 where he said, uh, well, I don't know, it's said in any number of ways there. All her carved images shall be broken to pieces. I will make Samaria, excuse me, a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard, pour out stones into the valley. Remember all that? But that's God doing to them. Where's the part where they have transgressed the people? Mm, Does he tell us what they've been doing to the people? Maybe that's in chapter 2. Oh, there it is. Beginning of chapter 2. Woe to those who devise iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it is the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. That theme comes back here, right? But in a different kind of way. You who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from my bones who also eat up the flesh of my people. You see how that's the same kind of expression? That, that you know, the substance of his people is the possession that, they have given, that he has given them, right? And, uh, you know, there's a way that... There's a way that we think of, like, possessions as evil themselves, right? Like, to be wealthy is to be... I mean, some would say to be favored by God, right? But then we have the opposite extreme where people say, well, that means, you know, that, that just proves that you're, you're greedy and what? That you're a hoarder or something, right? Yeah. 
but possessions themselves, are they evil? To have or to not have? Well, they're blessings, that's right. right? But they themselves are, uh, there's not like a positive or negative attached to them, one way or the other. It's how they're viewed. Yeah, not not only how they're viewed, but how they're used, right? So, um, of all the things that I don't agree with (laughs) Dave Ramsey about, this is one thing that actually I think he's helpful. I mean, he, he... um, he just, he describes um, you know wealth at, in terms of a of a brick, right? That it's it's really an inanimate object. It can be used to build, or it can be used. To, you know, you can throw it through a window and break the window, right? But the brick of itself is not inherently evil or good. But it but it's a it's an object to be used or a blessing to be used. Well, it becomes a blessing to you if it's used um, to bless others, right? Um, it does not become a blessing to you if it if if it's used only bless used for oneself, right? Um, although I mean, he gives you food not to give it away, but also take care of yourself, right? So I think this is one of the um, hmm, challenges. Is that right? I mean, to that there's a like I don't know, like an equilibrium, if you like, between you know creature comforts, care of oneself. And caring for one's neighbor, you know, and where's that balance? Uh, and so, actually, God uses the law to, to restrain. In the, at least in the Old Testament, He uses the, the law to restrain or to, to set that equilibrium. And He sets it pretty. He sets it pretty a uh, pretty low bar. It's ninety uh, percent is yours, and ten percent is your neighbor neighbors. Oh, that's not even right, actually. Ten percent is the for the church, and then you say, "Well, where's charity come from?" Actually, and then then from here, it's charity, or we'll say love, and then on that vocation, that would be like family, right? So then you take what is yours and then use that to care for care for yourself and for one another, those around you. Um, so we. I don't know, I've heard people argue this. I mean, this is not commanded in the New Testament, the tithe. Um, and we see, when we talk about, like, the book of Acts, right there in chapter 2, they kind of threw out, the, they threw out the whole tithing system, it sounds like, and they just said 100% is the churches, <laughs> almost, right? We're just going to take care of each other, kind of almost socialist or communist kind of view. Um, sorry about my handwriting. But I've heard it said, well, I give, you know, 5% to the church and I give 5% to other charities. You know, which would actually be high, statistically. Because I think in, uh, the last time the Missouri Senate tried to figure this out, it was something like, we were a little bit higher than most Protestants, or actually a little lower than most Protestants. We're towards the bottom of the, the scale. Um, actually, I don't think it was Missouri Senate that figured it out. It was Pew Survey, maybe. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was like 3%. 3% goes to the church. Uh, off of the gross, so so if three percent is going to the church, it's seven percent to other charity, maybe, probably not. So even lower than that. Um, so it seems like we've, if, if we're going to take this as just an example from the Old Testament that worked pretty well, actually, uh, practically speaking, then um, it's no wonder we have the challenges we do, because you can't, uh, you know, the, in the Old Testament. 
uh, even in the day of Jesus, um, a church, you only needed 10 families for a church. And the math works out. So 10 families, each giving 10%, then what does is, what is the church receive, roughly? They actually receive the median <clears throat> income, right? That was their model. It was pretty practical. Because if uh, somebody who's more wealthy is going to give 10%, somebody who's poor is going to give 10%, and then um, actually the rabbi would be right at, you know, right at the median, mathematically. Um, so he wouldn't be the poorest, he wouldn't be the richest, he'd be right in the middle, which means he's, you know, he's not anybody's enemy. <laughs> or he's, not, he's not friend of the wealthy or, or one of the poor, he's just right in the middle. So there's some wisdom in that too. And then you only need 10 families too, it's not like you have to have them. Ten families that might, might be six, on average six people a family, so that's still sixty people. But you know, uh, that's one of the challenges uh, that we face. Why did I bring that up? Oh, yeah, that they're stripping the people. So what they're doing—that's what we're talking about here—that they're they're taking possessions, right? Like we read in two, coveting the fields and taking them by violence, houses and seizing them. And here it's described in terms of stripping the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones. Who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from them. Maybe it was last week or the week before I, I gave the, the picture of um, like the televangelists, you know, who say, I don't know if you know this, maybe you don't know this, because you're here, you're not watching them this morning. <laughs> but uh, like, if only you, if you send me this really cool airplane. Well, I mentioned the airplane guy, Creflo, yeah, Mr. Dollar. But, um, you know, generally speaking, it's this reciprocal kind of arrangement, right? You bless me and I will, and the Lord will bless you through me, right? Um, and there's actually some truth to that, right? I mean, for you to have a place to hear God's word and receive all of his gifts, you actually do want to bless the church <laughs> so that the church is preserved. Your congregation is preserved, right? So there's some truth to that, um, but they think of it not in terms of receiving the gifts of, of faith, right? The word and, and, you know, the gifts of baptism, forgiveness, that sort of thing. They're thinking more in terms of you bless me with first article gifts, you know, donate your house to me, you know, in your estate, then I will bless you or your children with many houses, right? It will multiply. It will explode. And of course there's passages that talk about God using wealth that way. So it's not like they're pulling this out of thin air. Um, but uh, <laughs> many houses and many people isn't necessarily um, it's not in a worldly sense. We're referring to uh, coming to the, to the gates of heaven and witnessing the whole multitude of the heavenly host that, that God has, God has uh, called into his, into his keeping. We're like, how, where did you come from? You know? And that he's working even through little words spoken or gifts given in this life to, to create faith and expand that. So what else do we have there? Chop them into pieces, breaking their bones like, like meat for a pot and flesh for a cauldron. I mean, that sounds like... What does that sound like? That sounds like some kind of pagan sacrifice, doesn't it? Not just, not just uh, breaking up the, breaking up the uh, the people, or like making the people's making them poor or miserable, but actually 
them, consuming them, you know, devouring them, uh, which is a pretty horrible picture. <laughs> I don't know, do you want to be devoured? Hey, there's this other sheet I was looking for. It was in here the whole time. <laughs> All right. So that's question one. For what does the Lord accuse the leaders of Israel? This is pretty, pretty graphic language, isn't it? It's, it sounds like, how, how are the leaders of Israel, how are they relating to the people? Are they relating to them as, we're here as, like I would say, stewards of the mysteries to, to deliver to you gifts and to care for you? It's the opposite, right? They're coming and saying, you're here to feed me, to take care of me. That's why you're here. Right? And, and then not even voluntarily. <laughs> Yeah, taking advantage of them. What's the, what's the punishment? I'll see you read this. Verse 4. They will cry to the Lord. <clears throat> but he will not answer them. Mm-mm. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Yeah. And this is, this is probably one of the hardest words to hear, I think. Um... Because we'd like to think that that um, as soon as we call upon the Lord, He delivers us, right? So as soon as we say, "Oh, sorry," then He's like, "Okay, no, it's all right. It's your fine. I'll forgive it. Move on." That's not always how He works, uh, and that's not how He works with these people. And why not? What do you think? Why wouldn't He just like say, "Oh, it's all good. Don't worry about it." Well, I think they're, you know, it sounds like they're repenting. But what's the challenge? It's not that they haven't repented, but... They're taking advantage of Yeah, they took advantage of people. Think about it differently. Like, I mean, sometimes we talk about, we talk about sin in different ways, but at the beginning of class, we were talking about it being a captivity. Right, and then having this love of that captivity, right? So there's, um, if we read the, especially if we read like you know Kings and Chronicles, read the histories, we find out that they keep doing this. It like, uh, to use a modern term, we'd say it's been institutionalized, meaning it's it's deep seated in in their hearts. So for them to say I'm sorry and to try to escape punishment, that I mean that's not wrong. Um, but it isn't actually, I think, who said it? Repentance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, don't, I think, uh, you know, God can see into our hearts better than we can ourselves, right? So he can recognize when, when it actually we've, our hearts have turned to him in repentance, that's what repentance is, and when we are like the child who just doesn't want to be punished for what they did, you know? Well, I'm sorry, you know? Say you're sorry, and say you're sorry, Right? Just because if you don't, then you know things are going to go even worse, right? Not because you're actually sorry in a sense, like you really feel the weight of it upon your conscience, and you need to be freed from that. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so it's it's just right there in these. They they keep doing it, or they've been doing it. Um, where I was looking for another way that he expresses this back in chapter two. You know, we hear it from the prophets too, who just kind of prattle about. 
Yeah. My people have risen up as an enemy. Again, like men returned from war, taken up my glory forever. Uh, so, so then, so he with, withholds, I, he doesn't withhold forgiveness. That's, that's a different thing, but he withholds, um, he withholds the removal of the punishment, of the, of the threat or the judgment. So, um, you know, I mean, there's some danger in kind of, unless God says, there's some danger in pointing at this. Think about the expression of Jesus where he says, uh, well, who sinned? No, they come to Jesus and they ask him, you know, who sinned? Was it his parents or his grandparents? I mean, why is this man, was he born blind, I think? Was that one? Yeah. Why was he born blind? And it's not that, that, that he sinned, but that the glory of God would be revealed in him. I mean, he's not... Um, you, you can't always look at the, our experience of, of sin and the way that sin is broken out into our lives in this world, you know, through sickness and death and pain and punishment, suffering, agony, you know, despair, uh, depression. And these are all manifestations of, of, of our sinful flesh in the way that they're evident in us, addiction, whatever. There's a wrong-headed thinking in saying, well, God is punishing me. I mean, clearly here he's punishing these people for what they've done, but he's told them, right? That's the distinction. Um, so, so for us, um, we, all, we know that there is forgiveness, but we also know that the remedy is not always immediate, right? So I can say to someone, God will grant you healing, and I can say that every time when we pray with them, like in the hospital or they're sick or whatever, um, because I believe in the resurrection of the body, Right now, he may grant healing now, um, and if he does, then thanks be to God for that. But he has absolutely, definitively promised the resurrection, where where all sin, where all sickness and death will be removed. Right. So that's a little different, but it's also similar to this. So we can say yes, God forgives, and yes, He will um, receive you, and He does receive you. Um, but we can also then recognize. Yes, but what you've done to my peop- to your people, in this case, how you fleeced them, so to speak, right? Um, that has its consequence. You're going, to, you, you're going to go into Babylon. It is going to seem as if I am no longer, that, that I've forgotten you. Um, and this is the thing that probably bothers Christians more than anything. We're going to try to end a minute or two early, so I have time to get ready. Um, but maybe we should end here on this note, is that one of the most controversial things that Luther taught, um, I think, is in completely in, in keeping with the scripture, but it's one of the hardest things to hear, um, is that God wants to be known in, in weakness, in humility, in suffering, in pain. Like, he really... Um, as St. Paul says, he, uh, we preach Christ and him crucified, a stumbling block um, to Jews, and, or, or a rock of offense to Jews and a stumbling block to Greeks, right? And what's really disturbing about that statement is he doesn't say, I, we preach Christ resurrected. So, that's so why I say it's controversial because uh, most people have no problem with us proclaiming the resurrection, Easter Sunday, right? But they have real problems with Good Friday, um, but as Luther, um, Luther teaches, I, and I think helpfully, 
is that's where God wants to be known. That's where the true glory of God is revealed, is in the midst of that darkness, um, thunder, lightning, graves being opened, you know, terrible signs, and the moon turning to blood. What does Jesus say? When you see these signs taking place, lift up, for your redemption draws near. That that's, where, that's where forgiveness of sins is. The resurrection is the proof that God has received Christ, um, Christ's death as um, as the complete and full sacrifice for sin, um, as the resurrection it makes evident that death no longer holds him, sin is no longer um, being, um, the wages of sin you know, are no longer being meted out, if you like. So that's where the controversy lies, is that if God wants to be known in his cross, then as Luther will explain, the, one of the marks of, of the Christian church is actually life under the cross. That God refines us like a refiner's fire, that he, he, in the midst of difficulty and distress and you know, financial loss and whatever it is that, that you experience or the church may experience, that's where Christ is. That's where he is found. And that's where forgiveness, because that's where forgiveness is all the more valuable, right? Because you recognize um, the, the result of your sin and how it's made, been uh, made manifest. So, but I don't know if that's helpful. But, um, you know, we, when we look upon the cross, it's not in terror, but it's in with joy. Of course, that's for the sermon in a few minutes. So let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's close with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you visited um, those who persecuted your people with, with strict vengeance, um, you know, terrifying them for the sake of their conscience that they would repent and believe. And you have revealed unto us, um, through your Son, forgiveness of sins, the only source of forgiveness, um, that will indeed grant to us removal of all that would keep us from you, that, would, that you are the one who breaks through um, all of our captivities and leads you unto yourself. We ask that you would grant this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, good deal.